You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead better. Our great coach on this episode is Hugh McCutcheon. Hugh played volleyball for the New Zealand National Junior and Senior teams before transitioning into coaching. He started as an assistant at Brigham Young University in America and was part of the team when it won the NCAA Championships in 1999 and 2001. He became a head coach for the first time in 2001, leading the Austrian Hot Volleys. In his first season there, the team won the Interliga, the Austrian Cup and the Austrian League Championship. In 2005, he was appointed as head coach of the USA men's team, and that team went on to win gold medals at the America's Cup in Brazil, the Norica Continental Championships in Canada, and then ultimately the gold medal at the Beijing Olympics. In 2008, he was appointed coach of the USA women's team and led them to three World Grand Prix golds and a silver medal at the 2012 Olympics. In 2011, he was named head coach of the University of Minnesota's volleyball team. Hugh is a coach with a strong sense of purpose and the kind of deep-seated wisdom that comes through living and succeeding in multiple countries and cultures. He is articulate and passionate about the importance of coaching in a way that is tailored to the individual. Some of the key highlights from our discussion were 
the false narrative that anything less than perfection is worth celebrating. The mission statement he wrote with the USA men's team that guided them on the path to the 2008 Olympic gold medal and his view on the three types of trust needed within high-performing teams. I enjoyed this conversation a lot. I actually chased you for quite a while to be able to do it, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. And just before we go to the interview, if you're a first-time listener, you can check out our library of interviews with other great coaches at our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. We are also running interactive webinars on the themes that the great coaches discuss like, for example, culture, leadership, or high-performing teams. They are free to join, but numbers are limited to ensure good discussion and debate. And so if you would like to attend, please let us know using the details in the show notes. And now, please enjoy our interview with Hugh McCutcheon. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hugh McCutcheon, good morning and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having us. Well, I like hearing uh, another voice from my part of the world. It's going to be great <laughs> to chat with you a little bit today. The Antipodean twang. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Very good. No, not at all. But I'm going to start with something really simple, Hugh. Can you tell us where you are in the world and what you've been up to so far today? Sure. I'm in uh, Minneapolis, the Twin Cities, Minnesota. So far, we've got the kids up and they've got a day off school. So my wife and the kids are skiing today at a hill that's about, because there aren't too many mountains in Minnesota, (laughs) at a hill that's about 30 minutes away. I've been getting a few things done and uh, with my inbox and getting ready for this. Well, I'm very thankful for you giving up some time skiing with the family to talk all things coaching with us. So thank you for that. All good. Hugh, I'm going to start by name checking some of the big name coaches that you've been involved with over the years. Carl McGowan, Doug Beale, and John Kessel. And that's yep. just the name of you with that, all the other great coaches you've experienced at the Olympics you've been to. But I wanted to ask you from, from this up close experience you've had, what is it you think the great coaches do differently that sets them apart? I think the thing that's interesting is that they all probably play to a particular strength and it's that strength that's probably gotten them as far as it as it did. We all, well, at least in my world, we, we like to talk about generalized specialists, people that are good at lots of things, but they're great at one or two. And I think that list, I think, yeah, there's people that are good at lots of things within the coaching realm, but they've had a few strengths, a few strengths to their bow that have really set them apart. So... Let's talk about you then, because you've got this bachelor's degree in physical education and you've got a master's degree in exercise science. But what I wanted to do is ask you, knowing what you know now, after all these years coaching and all the Olympics you've been to, what do you wish they had have taught you back at university that they didn't? Oh, there's not too much. I think probably the biggest thing is just when you look back and you think, what advice would I give my younger self, et cetera, et cetera. It's probably just as much as we want to believe that this coaching gig is kind of algorithmic, it's not. The same inputs don't lead to the same outputs. And that's not season to season. That's probably day to day. It's just you've got human beings that you're dealing with and they come with all of the frailties of the human condition, right? Everyone's got baggage. It's just some people's suitcases are bigger than others. And and so to that end, day to day, your job as the coach is to be this consistent source of knowledge and information and, and, and connection. And then trying to, I guess, take your guiding principles or whatever it is that's formulating your method and apply that in the way that's required on any given day or, or week or season. So I think that's that's kind of the key to it all, yeah. So I want to get into these guiding principles of your, yours and these philosophies you've got, but maybe just if we could build towards that a little bit, because I'd like to start with 
your first experience head coaching, which was in Austria. You took over mm. the Vienna Hot Volleys. Yeah. First season, lightning strikes. You win the Interliga, the Austrian Cup, and the champion, the league championship all in the same year. It's not a bad way to start. If you cast your mind back to that gig that you had in Austria, what were some of the first things you did that put you on the road to success? Well, it was a very important formative experience, no doubt. It was a lot of work. You were talking about my, my academic preparation. One of the things I, I also did was an MBA because when I decided that I wanted to get into coaching after I did, because the, the exercise science thing was, was geared more towards a possible career in academia. And I was coaching. I started coaching then as an assistant coach with the men's team at, at BYU when I was going to school. And I, so I was kind of like, well, academics is great, but actually this coaching thing has got a little more stuff to it, connects your head and your heart. I like that idea. And once I started thinking, well, maybe I'm going to get into coaching. Well, now we're all an ankle sprain away from unemployment. So given that it's a, a more fickle vocational field, and I'll tie this back to Vienna, uh, given that it's a little more fickle, I thought, well, I better have a real world qualification. So I was able to, to do an MBA while I was coaching as well. Obviously, the the parallels between coaching and management are really strong. So that meant that when I got to Vienna and now I'm in there with this deal and I'm coaching players that are not too much younger than myself and we're playing in Champions League and we're doing all this stuff. It was a lot. It really came down to this idea of like, hey, I can just do the best I can do. And I really made sure that I committed to that that idea of best effort, that I was going to try to just give it everything I've got. And yeah, I'll be good enough or I won't. But if I can control as many of the variables as I can, then at least we'll feel okay about it regardless of the outcomes. So it was about you setting yourself up and focusing on your effort primarily Yeah, before you then started engaging with the team. Is that what happened? Well, it started with this idea that I understand as the coach, I'm going to have the chance to set the temperature in the room. And if we're going to ask them to work hard, because we knew the expectations for this team were extremely high. Uh, you might even say unrealistic, <laughs> but they were extremely high. And so it was like, well, hey, if we're going to have a chance at achieving any of this, then if I'm going to ask them to work really hard, I've made to make sure that I'm working hard as well. You have got a great quote from you where you say, trust is the currency that makes all high-functioning teams work. And so I wanted to ask, if someone's listening, what would you say are the critical steps for developing the type of trust that people expect to see in high-performing teams? Well, I think there's there's three types, really, that you would want to speak to. And I don't mean three definitions of trust. I, th- I think, first and foremost, the athlete has to trust themselves, their skill set. They, they want to be able to be in those big moments and know that they've got the skills required to, to be able to execute in those moments versus hope. And so to that end, as a coach, being able to help them to develop that fundamental mastery is a really important part of them developing trust within themselves, that they can trust their game. And then second of all, I think in team sports anyway, they've got to trust their teammates. And so I'm a big believer in giving the team relationships some boundaries and some structure. So I think it's important that teammates friendly, for example, but we don't need everyone to be best friends. And in fact, the idea that we would all be best friends is probably a little, at the very least, naive. But we can be respectful and inclusive and, and direct and honest and, and all of these things that I think are really important for developing trust because there's some authenticity in those relationships that we need. And just to take that in a little bit further extension, it doesn't mean that we're not friends. It just means that we're not requiring it. And I think in a lot of teams, 
especially in my coaching experience with women, there's kind of this need for required friendship or at least expressions of required friendship. So putting your arms around each other or holding hands and time out or something like that. And, and it's just like, look, we want to operate in truth. It turns out that on our teams, the connections are strong and there's a lot of really great friendships that evolve. But being able to take the I guess the pressure off or at least the expectation off that we're going to have to be a certain way with certain people that we can be good teammates, which to me is a a much bigger responsibility than in the college world. You get one to four years to be a good teammate. You can be friends for the rest of your life. But honoring that commitment means you can have some of the more challenging conversations when you have to have them between teammates. Like there's some accountability pieces and some commitment to excellence pieces that we might want to say that maybe if we've got our little friend hats on, we, we might not want to have those difficult conversations for fear of judgment or grudge or retribution or whatever. Anyway, that's trust within the team. And then finally, they've got to trust you as the coach. And to be a coach that, I guess, cultivates trust, you have to be trustworthy. (laughs) So like I said, a, a credible source of knowledge and information about your sport. Do you have character and integrity? Are you consistent in terms of your emotional control? All of that kind of stuff. And I think as I said, or as you said, right, trust is the currency that makes it work. But I think you need trust in all of those realms to really make it jive, to really make it happen. And as the coach, of course, like we said, you've got a a responsibility. You set the temperature in the room. So you being trustworthy and you really investing in those relationships and, and really caring about those in terms of, as coaches, we're service providers, right? And the service that we provide is to help these people become the best they can be. Well, you, you've really got to take that responsibility seriously. You said something really interesting there, Hugh. You said emotional control. Yeah. I'm wondering, what in your mind is the link between emotional control and heightened trust? Well, I think it's really hard for an athlete if you walk into the gym or the walk onto the field or the pitch or whatever environment you're in, and every day you've got to figure out, well, what's it going to be today? Are we going to get happy coach or sad coach or is it giddy or angry or whatever. I I just think we all have a responsibility. If you you coach, you've got to cross the line. When you get to practice or whatever it is or the match, no matter what stuff you've got going on, and we've all got stuff going on, you've got to be able to step in and say, hey, I'm going to do my job and and help these athletes or or help our team to to win or whatever it is and, and be able to control that versus let whatever good day, bad day you're having somehow dictate how you're going to be in those moments. Because as you've said, I've got to spend a lot of time with a lot of great people. And one of them was a guy named Ken Revisa, a a renowned sports psychologist whose work has been mainly in baseball, but uh, he worked with us a little bit with our 2008 group. Well, actually uh, quite a bit in that 2007, 2008. And we were great friends until he unfortunately passed away a few years ago. But Ken would say, hey, if if you can control yourself, you can control your performance. And I think that's a really big deal. And I think there are very few coaches that want to understand that connection between we're going to have emotional responses to the moment of competition, or maybe we're going to have emotional responses in practice, but we also have the ability to respond to that response. And if we let our emotions kind of dictate our actions, then we're going to be on this inevitable roller coaster of performance. But if we can say, hey, I get it that I'm upset right now, but I can take a breath and I can reset. And that me being upset doesn't have to dictate what I do next, my actions are the things that I get to really use as the defining characteristic of what I'm going to do in my sporting realm. So that ability to create that space, I guess, between emotion and and action is something that I'm a big believer in. And was it something you've always been good at or is it a skill you've developed as you've gone along? 
I think it's been a work in progress because when we're young, we're all prone to this idea of even something as simple as aggression, like we want to be aggressive, but I'm not sure we do, right? I mean, that's a negative emotional response. But what about being assertive where it's an intention and it's a proactive choice to engage in the moment? And I get it. These are probably semantics, but those kind of things I think are, are real. So over time, I think I've realized as the coach, my ability to stay in control probably has a big impact on our athletes' ability to stay in control. And I don't mean that I'm Geppetto pulling the strings. I'm just saying like, if I'm out there losing it, then what kind of example is that? And more often than not, in the big moments, if I can get him to take a breath or to stand tall or to just give him a little bit of tactical information, but get him to kind of decompress and and get back to somehow them being in charge of the moment versus the moment being in charge of them. I think that's part of my job. Hugh, in 2005, you take over the USA men's team and you write a mission statement. And if I've got it right, the objective was be the best we could be with the hope of the Olympic Games. Now that I know about the NBA, I can see why you wrote a mission statement. But of course, that team did go on to win the gold medal in 2008. And I wanted to ask you, what did this process of going from mission statement to result teach you about visualization and goal setting? Yeah, it was pretty important, really. And I understand I'm saying that with the the benefit of knowing the outcome. But I think when you're trying to achieve something significant, you need not just, well, well, how about this? Just wanting it isn't enough, right? You mean you need some clarity as well as conviction. And the thing that that document gave us was the opportunity to not only express the goal, but also to express a lot of the behaviors or at least behavioral expectations that were going to be around that. And even to some extent, a little bit of a vision statement woven in there about it, you know, who we were going to become in terms of how we were going to manage the the moment of competition. And there were two things that that happened that I thought immediately changed the way we were able to operate. One was this idea of clarity, right? This is what we're trying to achieve. But two, there was this instant accountability mechanism that was built in. And and so once everybody had signed off to this idea of, and we probably didn't have any right to say winning the Olympic gold in 2008, not that we were dog meat. I mean, we were a good team, but there were probably seven or eight teams that could have been vying for it. And the, and the main teams would have been Brazil and Russia who were really good and Italy and any number of teams that worthy of saying that. But once everyone had signed off on it, now we had this accountability piece where if we're coming into the gym on Monday morning and you've been out raging all weekend and you're not super crisp, well, there's a pretty big space between what you're saying you want to do and what you're actually doing. So it just was, we were able to get people to say, hey, you know what, if we are trying to be the best in the world at what we do, or how about this? If we are trying to become the best we can, can be with the hope of achieving this outcome, then we've got to act as if. And if we're not, then at the very least, we're, we're being seen as duplicitous. You talk about accountability and pushing it onto the athlete. It comes through a lot in the articles I've read about you yeah. or the video that I've seen about you as well. But I wanted to explore the inner workings of accountability, if we could, and I want to talk to you about self-talk. It's now an important part of any athlete's uh, mental skills development. And I'd be really keen to know, particularly as you're also a father, how you go about developing positive, healthy self-talk in people. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. I think it's not just a sports thing. I think it's a life thing and I think more than ever in in our world of comparison that that everybody chooses to engage in the narrative is inside your head is is more important than ever. So first and foremost, we understand that most of these athletes have bought into this false narrative that that somehow anything less than perfection is not worth celebrating and and even when they win the race or the medal or whatever but if they did something wrong then somehow there's required moment of self-flagellation or whatever we're going to call it so getting them to understand the importance of celebrating their successes and allowing maybe the coaches to bring to attention some of their inefficiencies is is a good place to start but also just that very word right there we we don't talk about right or wrong in our gym we talk about effective and efficient methods where efficient is connected to biomechanical efficiency which lends to repeatability and all kinds of things right but but just that idea of like hey can we just see outcomes for example as outcomes and not assign an emotion to it or a value to it but just see it as information and understand that that probably allows better learning and and more importantly more effective learning whereas if you get into that whole cycle of i'm frustrated well yeah i mean don't get angry get better right i mean when you're frustrated you're not in a rational space you're not able to take information and process it and make changes you're just pissed so that's the deal right can you can you get off of the rather self indulgent thing of like kind of hey oh, i'm so angry because i'm not getting it and it's no well okay yeah change is hard so just accept that lean into it and just choose to see it for what it is grass is green sky is blue you did this and we want you to do that simple well simple to say <laughs> i was going to follow that up actually because you're coaching uh, university at the minute and you must have these 18 year olds roll up this is new concepts to them, or maybe it's not. Maybe they've been in such strong programs that they arrive ready to go. But yeah, no, it's, it's new. Right? I mean, yeah. is it classroom based or is it on no, the job? No, well, it is. I mean, we tell them like volleyball is probably going to be the hardest class you have here. And I don't mean that like dum dum dum. I mean, we're not setting them up for anything other than just the reality of like, hey, we understand that we have a responsibility to teach, and we can coach too, right? But that's on the weekends. The other five days of the week, you've got a lot of teaching to do, but they also have a responsibility to learn. And so we try to help them to learn how to learn, which when you think about it is the most powerful lesson any of us can be equipped with. One of your players, Dali Santana, said of you, he cares more about your life outside volleyball that plays a big part in wanting to play for him and wanting to get better when you're out there. And the way he coaches, he even changed the way I breathe. That's how detailed he is. So there's a couple of follow-ups here. One is I'd really like to know how to breathe better, but perhaps we could just start with why is care so important, obviously, to you as a coach? 
I think life for most people is is uh, complicated, right? These kids come in with, and I use the words kids, it probably sounds a little bit at the very least pedantic or something, but they are 18. Even though when I was 18, I was pretty sure I had it all figured out, even though I know I didn't now. But, but they come in and there's a lot of complications, mainly around the idea of managing expectations because they have been obviously extremely successful before they get to us. And they're going to have to learn to deal with failure in lots of different ways when they come to us because the club high school volleyball world is great, but it's not the same as the college world. And and I see our, our responsibility, at least collegiately, is to prepare them for what's to come. And, and there are th- probably three parts to that as, as, as a college volleyball environment. One is obviously we want to be about competitive excellence. So we want to step on the court and try to win, of course, every time we can. But it's not about winning. It's about being the best you can be. Second, of course, is academic excellence. And these are in no particular order. Second is academic excellence. We're a college volleyball team. So you come to not only to play, but you get your degree. And for many of our athletes, they hope to go on and and play professionally or go to the Olympics. And Dally got to do both. But as much as they believe that's kind of their plan A, it's probably the plan B. The degree is the plan A. I mean, that's what most people are going to use. And then we also have this responsibility, at least I think, to to be about personal development, to take on this pretty formative time in their lives and help them to learn a lot about life. Because sport, one of the great things about sport is you can learn life lessons in sport without incurring the same kind of collateral damage you might get if you screw up in life. So I think that holistic approach to development is really important in my current role. Now, I get it when you're in the Olympic space, it's four years to be good for two weeks to hope to be good for the last two hours. And it's a lot about winning and getting on the podium and hardware and all that stuff. I get that. But like I said, we're the college volleyball team. So we care about these people, not just as competitive commodities. They're not just athletes. They're young, growing, evolving entities that we need to help shape and develop so that when they leave us, they're ready for whatever the next chapter is. Well, obviously you've been somewhat successful if one of your ex-players is willing to say that about you, but you know, I might move it on actually to a leadership because one of the interesting things I heard you talk about when I was preparing for this interview was adaptive leadership and why you think it's so important. Could you describe how this influences your coaching? Sure. The the idea of adapting is that, again, going back to this idea of guiding principles, well, at least in this day and age, it's not about I say jump and, and they say how high, right? It's as the coach or the teacher or whatever, I, I believe we have a responsibility to try to connect our content to the learner. John Wooden gave a great quote on this, right? If they haven't learned, you haven't taught. And I think that idea of taking 100% responsibility for your athlete's outcomes and trying to help them to figure out how to be better is a good place to start. So to that end, as much as I would like to think that these 18-year-olds that I'm currently dealing with to 21 have the emotional or mental range to be able to adapt to whatever it is we're throwing out there, I think that's probably a little bit unrealistic. What I know is that I've been around the block a few more times than they have. So can I use my experience to find different ways to connect our information to the learner in a way that's going to work for them versus worrying about how it's going to work for me? Now, that's not that's kind of a bend, don't break thing, right? That's not saying that I'm compromising the way that I'm going to go about it or the principles that are driving our methods. It's just I'm finding ways to apply them that work best for the people that I'm working with. Hugh, I've heard you talk about high-performing teams and how it's the little things, like asking your teammates if they need something when you leave the table, that really define these teams. But I've also heard you say that high-performing teams can contain no more 
than 1.5 idiots, which is one of the best quotes I've ever come across when I've been preparing for these interviews. So firstly, could you explain why you believe this? And possibly secondly, have you got any tips on handling idiots? I think we went with knuckleheads. Uh, but, but anyway, I think all teams have, like we said, right, there's people and there's, there's elements of dysfunction that come with that. And so the, the 1.5 thing was just talking about the fact that I think you can have one person on your team and ideally everyone's cool and high functioning, everyone gets going, but those teams are rare, right? But there's one person who's probably extremely talented, adds value competitively, but you know, maybe off the court or, or even on the court, it's, it's not quite right. The half is like, hey, maybe today you're going to be a knucklehead and maybe tomorrow I'm going to be a knucklehead. But once we get two knuckleheads, well, then all of a sudden we got to click and they're going to start recruiting other people to that world. And then it gets to be more complicated than I think you want it to be. So that's the one and a half. And and generally the one, if the rest of the team is high functioning, they'll either kind of work into that space or they'll find a way to self-select out. But generally they, when they don't have another person to connect with on that level, then they generally they try to work their way into the fold and it all works out all right. So, so that's the one and a half thing. And yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've got any questions about that, but that, that's been my experience there. I remember reading Phil Jackson say something about, I'm going to get the quote a little wrong, but he said, you know, the trick with the the Bulls was to make sure the five guys who weren't playing didn't get together and distract the five guys that were playing. And I think it's (laughs) a similar sort of area that he was picking up on. But in all seriousness, how do you go about managing disruptive influences? Do you give multiple chances? Do you sit them down and tell them once and then two strikes, they're out? Is there any particular method you've found more impactful than others? Really, I try to give them as much help as I can and bring their behaviours to their attention. I think that's part of it is a lot of times people get away with stuff because no one wants to have the difficult conversation for fear of they quit or they leave or they do something. But I think, again, this we'll call it dysfunction or whatever, there can be a diminishing return. Maybe there's a short-term degree of competitive success and you probably tolerate that uh, until you can re- either change it or, or replace it. But I think about people that have some of these dif- dysfunctional behaviors, I think it's possible to get them from dysfunction to function, but it's going to be hard to get them to be great. So there also has to be some investment in getting people that are functional to being great so that you can make up some of the difference there. But I think I think that's the part of it that we're, we're all faced with is can you have those tough, difficult conversations when you need to have them? That's why trust becomes this really, really critical part of it. Because then you can say to them, hey, I know we were talking about whatever it is, your forearm passing, but now we also have to talk about some of these on-court behaviors and see, hey, when you do this, this is what it looks like. Well, these are the ripples that you're creating. And, and then it's up to them to change or not, right? They'll either say, okay, I'll try and do it, or they won't. And then you go, give them enough rope, they either pull themselves up or they don't. They'll either try to change or they'll self-select out. So you have this great period, you coach to the gold medal in Beijing, you have a short break and then you're back coaching, this time the USA women. You lead them to the silver medal at the 2012 Olympics in London. I wanted to ask you about winning silver after winning gold and how this shaped your view on achievement going forward. Yeah, it was a very atypical coaching move, I guess, to go from coaching men and then start coaching women. I never coached women before. And surprisingly, it's not that different, but still volleyball. And volleyball is one of the few sports that changes the constraints of the competition environment to to deal with the difference in height and power of the athletes. The thing that was, 
I thought cool about that opportunity was the idea that we could coach, take this very successful paradigm of coaching that had been established and developed over over years on the men's side and take it to the women. So it's kind of cool that there isn't so much men's and women's volleyball now. There's just volleyball in the US and the systems and the and the techniques and the stuff is not too dissimilar. So when we got to that 2012 year, the team was ranked number one in the world. We were undefeated. We hadn't lost a match going into the Olympic final and Brazil played a really good match and, and they won. We'd beaten them the last six times we played them. I think it's probably at the very least challenging to beat the world number two team seven times in a row or any times in a row. Kudos to them. And yeah, there were some opportunities for us to, when you look back at it, wow, woulda, coulda, shoulda, maybe a little bit of that. But overall, having seen both sides of that match, I think has been also a unique experience, but I think it's okay. You get to that match, you have a chance to go to the mountaintop and you do, wonderful, and you don't. And yeah, it stings. But I think the biggest thing was, when I looked at the body of work, we were ranked number one in the world and we got second. We'd won the, there's an annual event in international women's volleyball. It's now called VNL, but at that time it was called the Grand Prix. We'd won it the last three years in a row. We'd had great success at international tournaments. And so it wasn't our day. And it's, I think it's important. Again, we obviously hope to be the last team standing, but if we can't celebrate the body of work, then it feels like somehow we just let that one moment define the last four of our lives. We'd be four, four years of our lives. We'd be doing ourselves a fairly significant disservice. So yeah, no one wants to lose that match and it stings, but hey, it's a silver medal. And, and if we can't celebrate that, if whatever it was that year, let's say it was 30 and one or something is a bad year, then it sure feels like, again, we're doing ourselves and the team a pretty significant disservice. Hugh, you say, we all want to try to become the best version of ourselves. That's what was driving me. And so I wanted to ask, how do you approach development as a coach, as an educator, as a leader, to ensure that you keep moving towards the best version of yourself? I've been fortunate enough to work with lots of good people. And so that makes it much easier, but just being in an environment where you can be challenged and stimulated and, and still feel that you're on this path, that you're progressing as a coach, I think is really important. Well, how about this? Occasionally, we'll have a, a coaching job open and I get lots of people that will write and or email or whatever it is. And they'll say, hey, I really want to come. I think it'd be wonderful. I'm going to learn so much and all this stuff. And in my head, I'm thinking, look, I don't want someone that's going to come and yeah, maybe they'll learn from here, but I want someone that's going to teach me. I want someone that can add value to this endeavor by bringing a different perspective. Because as we know, where everyone's thinking the same, no one's thinking very much. So just this idea of being with people that are going to keep you honest, I guess, and and maybe more importantly, that are also, if we're talking about similarities, then then similarly committed to the idea of this marginal gains concept that became so popular through British cycling and all the rest of it. But that idea of, hey, we can, year to year, we can continue to evolve in our in our process that we're not this fixed and set entity. Because I'd be the first to admit that we don't have it all figured out. I think we've got some good things in place, but we can always get better. Hugh, you say that you want to be a good husband, a good father, a good son, and try to be a good coach. So that's four goods in there. Yeah. How do you bring balance to your life so that you can try and be good in these many different roles? Well, I think one of the potential pitfalls of our vocation is that coaching becomes who you are versus what you do. And once you jump that shark, then it's really hard because then your ego gets way too involved. The team's wins become your wins. The team's losses become your losses. And somehow your 
coaching acumen or whatever you want to call it is on trial every time you step out onto the floor versus this idea of like, hey, I'm going to invest in the significant relationships in my life because ultimately those things are important and real and they need to be preserved. And and we can maybe talk about work-life balance as an extension of those relationships if you want to have a follow-up there. But but the most important thing is I need to be able to say, hey, I'm a coach. I'm someone that coaches versus call me coach. Call me Susan. I don't care, but don't have to call me coach, right? My name's Hugh. That's what I'll respond to. But the most important thing is understanding that this is this is what I do. It's not who I am. Any particular methods of review? Like do you do an annual review on how you're going in these roles? Is it more in the moment? I believe you've got quite young kids. They're not. They're not yeah, they're eleven and nine now, so they're getting they're getting a little bit more self contained. But yeah, still some great stuff, no doubt. So I think in terms of evaluation, after we compete, after we practice, we always. We'll have some follow-up. We'll try to chat a little bit about practice for the week, for example, and each day we'll we'll have a little chat about how did it go, what were some of the things we could be better at, how did the athletes respond to this. If we need athlete feedback, well, we got no problem going in there. Again, trust allows us to do that. For me personally, we just, again, commit to this idea of best effort, try to have honest conversations as a staff about ways that we can improve our process. And sometimes that happens organically. Other times we try to set it up and have a post-season reflection or an annual thing over the summer when we've got a bit more time. But yeah, we try to review our keys, our, our, our methods. What are some of the things we can be better at? We're open to those conversations, even though they can be difficult at times, but it's better to have that than somehow just think that because we're winning more than we're losing, that we've got it all figured out. Winning can mask a lot of problems. You've been very, very generous with your time, and I'm sure the, the family will be back at some point from skiing. So I'll probably just ask one final question if I could. And before I ask it, I'd like to preface it with a quote that I have from you. And you say, I think our job is really as service providers, and it's tempting for coaches to put themselves in the middle of it because we do get a lot of control and we do have some influence and power, but that seems irresponsible to me. We want to help these people be the best that they can be. And that's what we're here to do, to enable their improvement and their development. So it's a great quote. It's a really powerful statement, I think, about your philosophy uh, as a coach and as a leader. But to finish, I'd just like to ask you, in the distant, distant future, when you do hang up the whistle, what's the legacy you hope you've left as a coach? In terms of legacy, I, I would hope that the, the life lessons, as much as competitive success as we've enjoyed and, and winning the championships and the medals and all the rest of stuff, I would hope that the athletes could feel that there was genuine care and concern for their overall well-being and that they could apply some of these lessons learned in their lives and, and maybe in the, in the lives of, of other people that they got to influence, that we could set up this kind of uh, cycle of, of functional coaching or, or whatever it is, that we could get people to to consider that maybe helping others is, is not a bad thing to do. And, and that when we do help out others, we actually end up helping ourselves. I think helping others is a great place to finish. So Hugh McCutcheon, thank you so much for your time today. I've been stalking you for a few months now and I'm really happy that I didn't give up because it was great chatting to you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Hi everyone, it's Mike here. You've been listening to the great coach, Hugh McCutcheon. Some of the other highlights for me were dealing with the dysfunction, but not allowing your team to contain any more than 1.5 knuckleheads. Hugh's learning around emotional control 
which he sums up with the quote, if you can control yourself, you can control your performance. And how as the coach, your ability to stay in control has the biggest impact on the athlete's ability to stay in control. Another highlight to me is the importance of diversity of thought within the coaching staff and wanting to leave a legacy where the lessons on care and concern that people experienced within Hughes teams are then passed on to the lives of others outside of the team. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did bringing it to you. And before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like Tamson Greenway, who was also one of the most popular coaches we have had, said, felt very honored to be asked to do this podcast. Thumbs up. And Paul Teachens, who after listening to our Andy friend interview, said, outstanding podcast. Learned heaps. Great fella. Huge respect. Thanks, Tamson and Paul. The interaction with people around the world who listen gives us great energy to bring these great interviews to you. And all the details and how to connect with us and other people who are interested in leadership insights from Great Coach Podcasts are in the show notes. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 